Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Patrick Wood, who has been essentially devoting a lifetime to seeking to uncover the mystery behind what is controlling most of the craziness that we're seeing, which has been recently exacerbated by this COVID-19 pandemic. So he's the author of a few books, uh, the, uh, both of which I've read, The uh, uh, Technocracy Rising, which is the classic, he wrote a few years ago, The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, the more recent one, Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order. So you might be wondering what technocracy means, and we'll certainly expand on that in a moment. But Patrick is an economist by education. He's a financial analyst and basically a writer and American constitutionalist. Uh, and he holds a biblical worldview and has a deep historical insights into the, into the modern tax and sovereignty. So I was particularly intrigued because, <clears throat> you know, my approach is to seek to understand the foundational cause of the problem. And that, I think, really is a, a primary contributor to my success in practicing medicine. <clears throat> because I shortly after I uh, became brainwashed and started practicing <clears throat> and using the principles that they teach in medical school, I realized that th those were nothing more than symptomatic band-aids. And they rarely, if ever, treated the underly underlying foundational cause of why people were getting sick. <clears throat> so similarly, you know, and interestingly, it's pretty similar because uh, in many ways, that's what started my newsletter over 22 decades ago now. And to seek to share this information about the underlying causes of disease and, and ultimately, at least with respect to health, that many of these symptoms tend to be related to a substitution of the pharmacological drug and related paradigm to addressing the, um, the, the really important lifestyle changes that need, need to be engaged in to optimize your health and prevent disease. But then you wonder, is there something else, something beyond the pharmaceutical? And, and you get this sense that there is. And, and then when you study it more, you realize that it kind of goes back to the Rockefellers. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, who interestingly lived in and passed away literally a mile and a half from where I currently live in Florida. And he started, he and Carnegie started this foundation, that, which was called the Carnegie Report, which literally transformed medicine over 100 years ago, 110 years ago, and really got them away from natural lifestyle therapies more towards pharmacological paradigms. So there is a similar process going on with politics and seeking to guide this. And Patrick has done an unbelievable, brilliant expose. And I was just fascinated with his work when I recently discovered him. I just devoured his, his two books because they really help under help you understand what's behind all this. So there's, there's two phases we want to go into understanding it, and Patrick will in, just enlighten you enormously. And then the, I think perhaps more than the most important components of the discussion will be 
What can we do to turn this thing around? So with all that introduction, welcome and th so much and thank you for joining us. I really appreciate the introduction too, that's great. Um, I'm just so glad to be with you and you're, you're so right. The, our disciplines are very closely related, not in terms of subject matter, but just in terms of approach. And I think that's a really important takeaway for, for listeners um, is to don't just confine your view to the microcosm, like what's in front of you. Always try and look for the big picture. And that's been kind of my guiding light, I guess, in a way, since ever since I started back in the late 1970s. Yeah. And um, it's led me into very interesting places, uh, I have to say, interesting research um, topics and, and people that I've been able to meet and stuff over time. But the story continues to unfold, and even today is still unfolding. But once you have the big picture, it's hard to unsee it. Once you see it, it's hard to not see it. Yeah. And it guides everything else you do within your life at that point. And that's really important. It's certainly important in medicine because if a, if a, <laughs> if a doctor or researcher doesn't really understand the whole picture, how can he understand a little part of the picture when you get right down into some nitty gritty detail? It's very difficult. Yes, indeed. So let's go back to that history. I think it started, if I'm not mistaken, by reading your books with uh, your by chance meeting of Anthony Sutton. Who is an author I read 30 years ago? I mean, he was uh, pretty well. He's written so many books, and primarily about the Trilateral Commission. You, I guess, you met him at a conference. Just happened by chance to have a, a meal, share a meal with him at a, at a at a at an event, and you developed a relationship, and eventually wound up collaborating. So, why don't you describe that in more detail? Yeah, I, who, I would, who Anthony is, so because you can you can really expand it far better than I can. Yeah, I know. Look, looking back at that today, that's a long time ago. I, I look back at that as just divine appointment. I don't know how else to explain it. Uh, I was from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Tony Sutton was from uh, Aptos, California. That's a long ways away from me. I've never met him, never read any of his book, didn't have a clue who he was. And here both of us were attending a gold conference. This one was one of the first gold bug conferences back in the, in the 70s. And it was down in New Orleans. And so we both had flown down there and staying in this hotel, horribly overbooked. Uh, the conference, uh, they underestimated how many people were gonna come. It's just miserable uh, crowds. And it got to the little cafe uh, in the hotel, you know, so crowded. And at that time of morning, I don't know, 6.30, 7 o'clock, I'm, I'm, I'm not a particularly sociable person that early. But uh, they said, continental seating, if you wanna get a, a, a meal this morning, you're gonna sit where we put you. And I thought, oh, no, I got to sit with some stranger. And uh, anyway, they sat me down across from Tony Sutton. And after a couple of um, just, uh, hello, you know, what, well, what are you doing here? Um, we, we realized we had a common interest, a common story. And that happened to be the Trilateral Commission. And uh, I had been studying it from a financial angle as a financial analyst. And uh, he had been studying it from uh, more of a political science point of view because he had just um, uh, been separated from the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And he had been studying that. That was one of the reasons he got separated, by the way, is they didn't like him investigating this group. And so we met, started talking, and we realized we had a huge story between us. And by the end of that meal, we shook hands and agreed that we would produce at least a newsletter to start 
revealing our findings to the public. And that's how it started. I, isn't that crazy? Um, and, and we maintained our relationship. We worked hard together for several years, produced two books called uh, Trilatos Over Washington. Volumes wanted to, that was creative. And uh, uh, recently republished those books, by the way, and they're available on Amazon as well as my website. Um, so that started, uh, that started my career really as a young person at that point. And uh, having been mentored by somebody like Anthony Sutton, who was a world-class researcher, um, left indelible marks on my life. I, I couldn't do what I do today without his uh, coaching, instruction, watching him do things, watching his mind work. Um, he told me one day, I didn't know this until I'd known him for at least six, nine months, that he didn't own a TV. And I said, why don't you own a TV? He says, I don't want to pollute my mind. <laughs> I don't want any of that stuff. So he took up, he subscribed to about 15 different journals and newspapers. Some of them were scholarly. Some were like the New York Times. And he would sit down every morning and spend his two or three hours just flipping through the newspapers, looking for stories in the front page, back page, middle page, classifieds, whatever. And uh, he was really intent on keeping his mind focused and, you know, on his subject and digging in the right places and stuff. So that that's helped me today just tremendously to do what I do. Yeah, he'd probably have a different strategy today if he was still alive, because I'm sure rather than looking at the periodicals, he'd be online. And he probably wouldn't have a very high favorable view of the New York Times, who has oh. literally <laughs> embraced the technocratic <laughs> viewpoint. And we'll we'll engage in that in a moment because I think Really, that is what you bring to the table and helping to a lot of us, almost everyone listening to this has heard the word technocracy, but virtually no one understands what it is. Mm -hmm. So since you've written two books on it, why don't you define it in a way that people will be able to understand it? Absolutely. You know, I always let the source define itself. And that's appropriate in this case. The technocracy was a movement started back in the 1930s originally. It was in the heat of the Great Depression. It happened at Columbia University in particular. Uh, scientists and engineers got together to address the problem of the depression. It was pretty really pretty depressing time. The soup lines, unemployment, financial disasters, and so on. And it really looked like capitalism and free enterprise was gonna die. <clears throat> um, so these engineers, egotistical as they were, said, we can do better. We can invent a new economic system from scratch that will solve all the problems of the world, essentially, and will really just kind of take us into the future. And they call this system technocracy. It was to be a resource-based economic system, uh, not based on price, uh, you know, uh, pricing mechanisms like we understand supply and demand, but rather based on uh, energy and uh, they actually proposed to use an energy script instead of money and let energy be the determining factor on what was produced, bought, and sold, and consumed, and so on. But being engineers and scientists, uh, when, in 1938, when this definition came out, which I'm going to read, um, they had kind of capsulized their, the, what they viewed as the scientific method and the scientific approach. 
And it's important to see that today because we see the same subtleties, the same mindsets, the same thinking processes that they had back then. And I will contend it's a very dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thinking process. But here's what they, here's what they concluded in 1938 themselves. They said, technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. And first off, you'll see that it's the science of social engineering. That ought to be enough to make the hair stand up on the back of your head because um, who wants to be scientifically engineered by somebody that you don't know, somebody that doesn't know you, but rather has this idea that they can reform you, remake you in, the, in some other image. But most importantly, you see the economic aspect that they had in mind, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism, that's all the people in society, to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. This was an economic system from the get-go, not a political system. And what's really important to see in that, the big takeaway here, is that technocracy viewed politics and politicians as an unnecessary, irrelevant, and even just a stumbling block to getting on down the road with society, with, with history. And so they proposed to get rid of all the politicians, just dismiss them, dismiss the Senate, the Congress, all the elected officials and stuff. And they basically wanted to set up like an organization chart, like a corporation would have today, where you have the president and you have vice presidents doing different things. And then you have directors over certain departments and so on. And they would just disappear the political system per se, leaving no uh, citizen representation of government. And of course, that means that meant at the time, the constitution would have been immaterial too, because that is that defines the political structure that we're supposed to exist within. So this was the genesis of technocracy and technocrats. And they just had this crazy idea that they were somehow just a little bit better than everybody else. And we can trace the philosophy um, back to who is known now, even by the technocrats as the father of technocracy, a French philosopher from uh, the, around 1800, his name was Henri de Saint-Simon. And uh, he is considered to be the father of scientism as well as the father of social sciences, as well as the father of transhumanism and technocracy. So he said, in one of his essays, a scientist, my dear friends, I love it, my dear friends, a scientist, my dear friends, he's writing to us, is a man who foresees. It is because science provides the means to predict that it is useful, and the scientists are superior to all other men. That's a, in my opinion, that's a bad way to wake up in the morning with that kind of an attitude. I have arrived, I'm here, I'm better than everybody else, and I have the ability to predict the future because saint Simon said so. This is the mindset of technocracy. It wasn't in the 1930s, and has been in the same mindset ever since, and we can see this type of ego 
today and a lot of people in the media currently. We'll talk about some of them, I'm sure. Yeah, so thank you for that uh, framework. And uh, I think it's important to understand the history even further and realize that the first country to ever implement technocracy, at least as far as your books explain, is Nazi Germany under Hitler. And uh, so you can expand on that. And, and I think it, uh, to the point where they failed in, to implement it in the 1930s and then gradually were successful in 1975. But uh, also explain how technocracy is not Republican or Democratic. It is neither. It's not Marxist or capitalist. It's just an ideology that's independent of both of those. So why don't you address the, the uh, comment on Hitler first and how he adopted that and then progressed into the, to the next one. technocracy was started in the United States, <clears throat> it was a membership organization. Um, they, at one point, the, at the peak, had uh, over 500,000 card-carrying, dues-paying members uh, in the United States and Canada. Canada was big on technocracy, too. Um, and by the way, uh, the head of technocracy in Canada uh, happened to be the grandfather of the person we know today as Elon Musk that runs. Oh, SpaceX. that's interesting. <laughs> just, just connect a little, a little circuit. Yeah, there. it's interesting, especially in light as we're recording this, the stock of, uh, of his company Tesla has increased so much that it's now worth more than every American car manufacturer combined and is worth more than Toyota, which prior to a few weeks ago was the leading, uh, the largest, or the least most well-capitalized comp uh, auto company in the world. So it's just crazy. I mean, it's just his company, his company has exploded. It, I know, it, re it really is. Well, we might bring him back in a little bit more, but sure. uh, I just thought I would mention that little tidbit. Yeah, because uh, <clears throat> so I, I read his biography, and I knew, but I didn't make that connection. Thank you for <laughs> um, Technocracy started here. They had groups, membership groups all over the country that met. <clears throat> they had a journal publication um, called The Technocrat. And in Germany, at, a, at almost the exact same time, um, a, an organization was started up over there. They were not organically corrected as the best, to the best of my uh, ability to discern. But the German edition of Technocracy published, uh, mostly in English, sometimes they translated into German, the same articles that appeared in the American counterpart. So at the very least, you could call them sister organizations. I think that would be appropriate, but they were birds of a feather and they flocked together. There was a lot of camaraderie. Uh, they, they, both groups basically uh, agreed on all the principles of Technocracy as an economic system. And uh, they had the same attitudes and so on towards using science to, you know, manipulate society. <clears throat> um, when Hitler rose, or as he rose to power, he realized that the technocrats, uh, as an organization, would be uh, competitive with him being becoming dictator. So he outlawed the uh, technocrat party in Germany at about the same time. Um, Canada outlawed technocracy in Canada, not in the United States, but in Canada. And they, they viewed, uh, for a number of reasons, they thought that somehow the two were connected and that technocracy in Canada would be, you know, supporting Hitler and whatever. It was kind of a mess, but it, they were banned in Canada for two years. They finally got it lifted. Um, but <clears throat> during the course of 
World War II, uh, before, you know, during Hitler's reign, uh, it was discovered later by historians that these technocrats who were kind of banned from meeting and stuff, that they were actually very active all during the, uh, the, the war. And uh, they were the ones that were the statisticians, the mathematicians, the physicists, et cetera, the engineers for business and so on, that really enabled Hitler's um, expansion and his dictatorship. Uh, that's not to say that they were all in lockstep with his goals, but they, they had a good time supporting all those things because they were highly prized by, uh, by Hitler and his, um, his leadership. And <clears throat> during the war, they found out also that these technocrats were communicating between the columns of power in Nazi Germany, and Hitler was rather paranoid about keeping all of those different areas separate so they would not communicate. But uh, they did communicate during the war. And after the war, uh, this is interesting, when the war was done, Hitler was uh, dead and, and the Nuremberg tri trials were straight ahead. Um, a top secret or operation here in the United States has now been declassified, lots of information, books have been written about it, called Operation Paperclip brought some 1,600 of these, or 1,200 of these uh, top scientists and engineers from Germany back to the United States, sanitized their resume, and installed them into positions of scientific prowess in the United States, like the National uh, Technology uh, Agencies, um, uh, well, NASA is probably NASA is the biggest uh, example of where the rocket scientists went to. Uh, Werner von Braun, for instance, for instance, was one of those people who was brought over under Operation Paperclip. So the very same people that were helping Hitler do what he did uh, completely bypassed uh, the Nuremberg trial. Some of them should have been there, I'm sure, but they were brought back to the United States and given, uh, you know, high uh, positions of um, prestige to continue to practice their science and engineering, a little cracked as it was perhaps, in the United States. So thank you for that uh, expansion on the, that uh, story. So, but, but expand also on the fact that this is not uh, a partisan issue at all. It is not Republican or Demo Democrats that's the issue. It's, it's, it's really the underlying force that's driving both parties that most people aren't aware of. Yes, and I'm, I'm so glad that you, that you really grasp that, and I know that I can just tell that you really do. Um, <clears throat> as I said, back in the 1930s, um, the technocrats of that day wanted to completely dissolve our political system. They wanted, in fact, they openly called on FDR to, to in, declare himself dictator. So that they, so that he could just implement technocracy. He didn't take them up on it. We can, we can thank God for that. <laughs> we only got the New Deal instead. By comparison, it's much better. But um, um, they wanted to get away, get rid of all the political system. <clears throat> when the Trilateral Commission picked up the concept of technocracy in 1973, and that was brought in by its co-founder um, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and of course David Rockefeller was the money behind the whole project, but Brzezinski was a professor at Columbia University, and he wrote this book called uh, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era, and it caught 
Rockefeller's eye. And so Rockefeller and Brzezinski became like the Beauty and the Beast, and they went on to form the Trilateral Commission, which declared from day one that they wanted to foster a new international economic order. <clears throat> they said that repeatedly in their literature. This is what got Sutton excited, and me too. Uh, what is this new international economic order you're talking about? What do you mean? Uh, you know, we have an economic order. It seems to be working. And why do you want to change everything? And what is your idea here? Well, we really didn't understand technocracy at the time. Looking back now that I've discovered it, I can see how everything fit together. But the Trilateral Commission took over the administration of Jimmy Carter, almost lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, Carter was a member himself. Walter Mondale was a member. Brzezinski was a member. At one time, all of the cabinet members, uh, except for one, was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Uh, you had, over the next few years, uh, eight out of ten of the World Bank presidents that get appointed by the U.S. They were members of the Trilateral Commission. And I could go on with this, but the Trilateral Commission moved in and dominated the political structure. Jimmy Carter was a Democrat. Ronald Reagan came in after that, along with um, George Bush, who is a Republican. And then came George Bush again as his own presidency. Bush was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Then you had uh, Bill Clinton and uh, Al Gore come in in the 90s. They were both members of the Trilateral Commission. What happened here, you see the Democrat, Republican, Democrats didn't seem to matter. What happened here is that they were after the mechanism of the, because America was the greatest economic engine in the world at that time. They wanted to get control of the economic engine of the world so that they could manipulate it for their own benefit and convert it or transform it, if you will, into ultimately technocracy, which they saw as a, it's just going to happen. It's inevitable, they thought. So <clears throat> the idea of being involved in politics had nothing to do with politics. And they even said that back in that day. We're not political. We're economic in nature. And we've seen this this very same thing float on top of all of the political parties that have come and gone, <clears throat> where they will use that political mechanism to further their own interests, but they basically have no interest in the political mechanism as a mechanism. When it is convenient for them to get rid of it, they will jettison it like, um, you know, like stage two on a space shuttle. <laughs> Just get rid of it, and that's going to be the end of it. People challenge me on this, uh, Dr. McCullough, and they say, well, you know, how can this be in this day and age, whatever? There was a book written um, a few years ago by a global elite scholar by the name of Parag Khanna. He's um, of, uh, of Indian uh, Asian descent, and he's uh, in Singapore. He works for the U School for Public uh, Policy. And <clears throat> he's young, he's articulate, the global elite love this guy. He's really quite brilliant. But uh, uh, he, Kana wrote a book called Technocracy in America. And that was the title, Technocracy in America. And he flat out said what we ought to do, what, how America should convert into a technocracy. He said we should do things like dismiss the Senate. 
oh, that's, that's minor, right? And then he said, we should turn the Constitution over to the Supreme Court, and we should get rid of the office of the president, have a committee of presidents like they do in Switzerland or China. And, and he goes on with this stuff, and basically he just dismantles our entire political system and throws it out the door. And th so this mindset has never gone away. Politicians are the useful idiots of technocracy. And, yeah, and I think it's important to understand that uh, this has been a very clever and sophisticated strategy and very patient. They, this is not a, a rush to power. They're committed to the long term, which is really a massive contradiction to what most businesses in, in the United States perspective uh, take. So we are fighting an enemy that has literally spent the last several generations compiling their power structure, power face, which has, and they've done it progressively over time. And they engineer these circumstances that allow them to, to take more and more power. I think the last great power grab was in the 9-11 tragedy where they were able to implement the Patriot Act, which really sacrificed many of our, our freedoms. And they're in the process of doing it now with the current pandemic. Uh, and, you know, to go moving us towards an authoritarian tyranny. So why don't you comment on their strategy of really committing to the long term and, and having this a focus because they've been successful in many other countries of, of the world to implementing their strategies, but they haven't in the United States primarily because of our constitution. And th we're the biggest barrier worldwide to implementing technocracy. And th so they've been really focusing on the United States. Well, <clears throat> yeah, it is. <clears throat> the, the strategy has been to build infrastructure for their system. Uh, that, that's, I realize that's a term that, that will mean a lot of things to different people. And so maybe we should kind of define it, think sure. it through. Um, infrastructure is the the schematic diagram that makes things work. For instance, we have roads in our country. <clears throat> we have railroads, we have physical roads, we have freeways, we have telecommunication systems, we have telephone lines, we have um, airports and things that connect everything together. <clears throat> the concept of infrastructure is basic to any economic system. You have to have some type of infrastructure so that the whole system will work. And so today when the government passes a $2 trillion infrastructure bill, you and I will think, oh, finally, we're gonna get those potholes fixed out on our street or something. <clears throat> but in the technocrat mind, uh, in, in the larger scheme, setting up the in infrastructure involves so many more things today than it ever did. For instance, the infrastructure of technocracy now has to do with anything called smart, smart growth, uh, smart cities, uh, smart phones, smart devices, internet of, you know, the internet of things that ties everything together, all of the sensors and the cameras and stuff like that. This is the new infrastructure <clears throat> of the digital era. It's all technology-based as well, I might add. So infrastructure 
started way back. I mean, this was really in their mind big time back it, it, even when the Trilateral Commission was first started. A case in point, one of the early founding members of the commission uh, was Casper Weinberger, who happened to be the president of uh, Bechtel Engineering. It's the largest private engineering company in the world. They're huge. They're very, they are private. Nobody knows much about them. But they were part of the Trilateral Commission uh, group. And when Brzezinski brought China back in uh, by whining and dining Chairman Deng at the time, and he's been credited as the guy who brought China back into the world stage. By the time China was legally uh, allowed to receive Western aid and Western companies coming in, Bechtel Engineering had already executed and completed 18 major infrastructure projects in China. They did this at a time when it was patently illegal <clears throat> to deal with the quote unquote, the enemy because they were still our enemy back then. So they just simply ignored the law in the United States and they sent their Caterpillar tractors and whatever else, you know, over there to China and they helped China build the infrastructure. This is before China even had a dream of becoming what it is today. So they built power plants, they built you know, city infrastructures and stuff like that, um, and, and dams and uh, you know, manufacturing uh, electrical grid, things that would connect manufacturing. This is infrastructure. <clears throat> they have been focusing on infrastructure ever since. And as much as anything, even though the big picture of technocracy is still there, they've always realized that without building this infrastructure, they have nothing. They can get nowhere. They must have it in order to, uh, to move on down the road. So we've seen this emphasis on infrastructure ever since 1973 in ways that you know, people hardly can understand anymore because it's so technological. Um, but the infrastructure is being laid today includes such things as the Internet of Things where sensors and everything connect together to feed data back to, you know, some mainframe somewhere and cameras to film everything in society and take that back to the computer, computer somewhere and all of the financial transactions, all of the data transactions that you and I do back to some computer somewhere where now artificial intelligence is coming in and sitting on top of it all to make sense of all the data coming in. And where the same artificial intelligence programs now are taking that data, working at getting sense, some sense of meaning out of it, and then turning around and issuing uh, things that we should do in response to that. In other words, how it should change us. This is the science of, of social engineering. <clears throat> and it's engineering by algorithm. They saw this even back in the 1930s, even though there was no such thing as artificial intelligence back then. They realized that science eventually would be to the point where their, their algorithms could be automated to the point where they would be able to replace the political structure to keep everything in line, to keep everything working. Rule by algorithm, operation by algorithm. And this is, what we, this is the big predominant thing we see today. And what doesn't fit into the algorithm immediately, you'll hear the term science says. It's like Simon says when we were kids, 
you hear science say, well, science says this, or science says that, well, we should do that thing. And uh, uh, initially it's just a suggestion, like Fauci says, we should all have vaccines or we're gonna have a vaccine one day. And, uh, the, and everybody should get that vaccine for whatever reason is convenient for the day, maybe for herd immunity or maybe just for making money for the far- big pharma companies. But um, it's a suggestion initially, science says this is what's good. But then if you look behind what they're doing, it's not just somebody saying science says, now it's let's figure out a way to give everybody a vaccine passport so that we can identify who's had it and who hasn't. (laughs) Well, let's get the database going where we can set up a master um, fly, no fly type of thing, social credit type of a thing where, where people that are bucking the system won't be able to participate in all the things in society that other people do that went along and got the vaccines and, you know, just took the program without questioning. Now it's being set into an algorithm is going to do it for us. The algorithm will control everybody, will manipulate everybody. So it goes from science says to the algorithm, then it becomes automated. Then they don't have to say science says anymore. (laughs) They just push the button, the algorithm takes care of it, and you get the shot, and that's the end of it. So this, this business of infrastructure is very sophisticated. It's, today it's called supply chain, by the way. A lot, that's a big a term you hear too. Uh, the supply chain, moving goods and services to get just in the right place, just in time, uh, no warehouses necessary, just kind of ship it, and it's there exactly the day you need it. Um, and this has all been automated as well. It's part of the infrastructure, you see that they need to implement technocracy one day. Well, good, and I want to tangent it off to another author's work, which we'll discuss in a moment, but I wanted to, to predicate that before that discussion about the, uh, an understanding I don't think many people fully grasp, and you, you indirectly referenced it when a lot of the data that's being captured by these sensors are sent to the mainframe. Well, it's not a mainframe anymore. That was, they had mainframes in the 70s. Now it's this complex network of, computers primarily using GPUs that are very using very sophisticated uh, deep reinforcement learning strategies that are literally the, the very similar to what uh, AlphaGo did to defeat the world's Go champion that are, are used to predict behavior. And I, I earlier within the last year read Shoshana Zuboff's book, uh, Tech, uh, The Surveillance Capitalist, and she's all she's from Harvard. And she was actually a student of B.F. Skinner. And it occurred to me, and she didn't mention directly, but she talked a lot about this prediction behavior and really as Skinner being one of the primary proponents. I mean, he had a teacher before him, but he really took it to the next level. He was at Harvard and he was actually one of her professors. Uh, but I, my guess is he was part of this technocracy movement. He had to be. I think a lot of it comes from these prestigious universities like Harvard and Stanford. Uh, and... So she, she had that, that history there. Her, incidentally, I think I read both of your books in less time than it took me to read half of her book. It's, but it's, it's just magnificent. It is the, literally the most brilliant expose of the technical development of the capacity to raf, radically increase the surveillance behavior and the technology associated with it, primarily related to Google in the very early 2000s. And it's exact, their first implementation was this pre- ability to predict 
clicking behavior on ads. That was their first implementation, but it's just extended so far beyond that that we have even other researchers like Robert Epstein, who's also out of Harvard, Harvard who shows that now they're, they have the ability and have influenced the, the outcomes of 25% of the elections in the world. So they are manipulating their behavior. And, and, and I want to actually, I want to mention that quote now, because one of your early books was, was very prescient in that I want to read a quote from this. It says, in many ways, ideology can be compared to a virus. <laughs> History is riddled with failed ideas that were forgotten as soon as they were uttered. Many virus mutations terminated before they ever had a chance to infect other victims. What is necessary for a virus to spread is contagion or a medium by which it can be transmitted. In order for technocracy to make a resurgence on the world stage, it required a contagion by which societies and social systems could be successfully infected. And, why the, and this was written... At least we would know better, but I don't I didn't, uh, have at least four or five years before this current pandemic. So I thought it was just a brilliant <laughs> prediction as to how this was going to happen. But I, I, the, the, I guess the point I'd like you to comment on is it seems that they're using this massive infrastructure, uh, highly artificially intelligent behavior. And, and by the way, artificial or, or the the technical infrastructure to create artificial intelligence is, is being implemented at a rate higher, much higher than Moore's law. And I'm sure almost everyone knows what Moore's law is that was related to the advance in computing capacity of integrated circuits and their cost, which would literally double every 18 months to a year. But, but artificial intelligence is increasing at a rate much higher than that. So if it's bad now, it's going to get worse, worse in the future. And and it's, well, the reason that's a concern is that it gives them the ability to become more and more accurate at their predictive behavior and their ability to manipulate behavior because of that predictive power. So the, the point I wanted to make is it seems, and I haven't read anywhere, but it seems intuitively obvious that for the last two decades, Google has been compiling data since they are the premier, uh, I guess, arb not arbiter, but... Uh, holder of artificial intelligence knowledge. Like certainly there's other corporations, but they're the leader. I mean, they own DeepMind, which has the best, not the best, but the, the, the absolute largest number of, of artificial intelligence scientists. So I'm wondering, it seems like that my guess is that because of their massive surveillance capacity in almost every one of their tools, from the Android cell phones to the Google search engine to the Chrome browser, uh, that they've been collecting data for two decades and they know what changes our behavior. And my best guess, and this is what I'm interested in your view on, is that they've collected this analysis, this data and analyzed it and were able to accurately predict that this pandemic, they knew exactly what would cause us to, to, to and motivate people to action. And this is what was implemented. This is what they're refining and continue to refine because they've got the infrastructure in place to change behavior? Well, they do, and data is the new oil of the 21st century. We've said that for years now, and it's really true. Whoever owns the data controls the system. And in the last century, it was century, it was energy, it was oil that was the big deal. But today it's the data. And data is more valuable to technocracy than any other commodity that you could conceivably imagine. Um, and 
Google's been collecting this data, as you said, for a long, long time. They've been analyzing it for a long, long time. And they have a number of techniques now where they can use that data, weaponize it in a sense, turn it back on us, and cause it to modify our behavior. And you see, this is right in line with the scientific, with the scientific uh, you know, social engineering concept again. It's perfectly in line. And I said this for a long time, you know, Eric Schmidt, who was the longtime CEO of, um, of Google, he then graduated uh, as chairman of Alphabet. He's now out of the company. But several years ago, um, Eric Schmidt was in, invited to be a member of the Trilateral Commission. Yeah, it comes, <laughs> what goes around comes around. Um, and he's did, now. Did he, did he accept? Was he a member now? Oh, yes. Oh, he's hobnobbing with the world elite now. And uh, he's also, you know, hobnobbing with our government, too, to create social, you know, to create systems for uh, surveillance and data collection and stuff like that. But Google now has been in a position to weaponize that data. I just kind of use that term because when, whenever it's turned around where people are the target of manipulation, that's a weaponization process is manipulating people. Maybe not, maybe not harming them physically, but it's harming them mentally and getting them to do what they want. Um, Google does this in several ways. Not only do they condition the feed that you see when you search for a certain term, but also even the type ahead box where you start to type a few letters and, and it anticipates what you're going to type. And it gives you a list of things and a little drop down. It, uh, uh, things that may just uh, relate so that you don't have to finish typing. You just click one and you go there. Well, this type ahead feature they, f they figured out is more valuable than anything else they have because they can, knowing who you are, knowing your history, your browser history and whatever it is you're coming in there for and whatever everybody else is looking for, when you start to type in a search, it will give you the answers that it wants you to pick one. It won't give you the ones that you might really be looking for, but it'll give you what they think you should pick. This has a huge psychological impact on people, just huge. So for instance, if somebody types in something for alternative medicine or for some you know, particular supplement or whatever, whereas, <clears throat> whereas if that supplement was typed, let's say, uh, say three years ago even, or five years ago, um, your name would come up to the top of the list. And, you know, you'd see maybe some stories that you were, uh, that you authored or maybe the product, a product or something that you developed and you, your name would come up. Not today. You've been disappeared. And, you know, he said, well, you haven't disappeared. You're still there. You haven't done anything different. You're still doing exactly what you did. But Google is treating you as a non-person now. It almost reminds you a little bit of 1984 where, uh, hmm, where Winston worked in the Ministry of Information <clears throat> and uh, his business half the time was scratching out people from history. They just ceased to exist. Every record, even their birth record, was erased and nobody would ever hear that person's name again. And if they went to look, they couldn't find him. Uh, and then they finally can figure, well, maybe it was just my imagination. I never really knew somebody like that anyway. But Google has this power to present information that it wants you to hear or see. <clears throat> and they can manipulate minds and mindsets. It's just amazing. It was so, it's so amazing that they even said uh, internally that they believe they have the power to throw the, the 2000 election away from Trump because of this very feature. And it's like, well, well, wait a minute. If any person or organization 
sets themselves up intentionally to um, overthrow the government of the United States. I think there's a term for that. It's called sedition. Mm -hmm. And it might give way to insurrection in the end as well. But uh, that doesn't bother these people. You see, it does, there's no ethical guide whatsoever that tells them this is wrong and don't do it. They feel this is perfectly normal. They've got the data. They make the rules. It's, it's just like in the last session, you say, whoever has the gold makes the rules. Well, now it's whoever has the data makes the rule. And so they're influencing people and they're nudging people in one direction or another direction. And it's extremely dangerous because those who are susceptible to that kind of manipulation, uh, once they are in that manipulation channel, they can get them to do anything under the sun. It's like once you hypnotize somebody, you can give them suggestions uh, to do, you know, like cluck like a chicken or whatever. But Google kind of has that same power over people. Once it gets a hold of a person and really starts messing with their mind, then they can feed all kinds of stuff into it and get them to do all kinds of things they would not have otherwise done. But do you, do you believe it's that this knowledge that was uh, captured by Google that was largely responsible for creating the circumstances that led to the massive government intervention that there no way would have ever been able to get away with had they not had some understanding of what motivated people. So yes, that, I, I believe that's what I believe. I believe that the, the really at the core of this was the data that Google's generated yes. and, and, and allowed them to know very accurately predict yes. exactly what would happen if, if certain scenarios were implemented. Or, yes. or, and that's true for Facebook and Twitter and other entities like that as well. Um, everybody's kind of like piled on now to this, uh, to this meme. And you can't look at a Mark Zuckerberg, <clears throat> and I challenge people to do this. You, you can't look at a Mark Zuckerberg. You can't look at uh, uh, the head of Twitter. You can't look at Jack Dorsey. Uh, Jack Dorsey. You can't look at, uh, uh, at uh, uh, Google and say, these are communists just can't do that they're technocrats they march to a different tune completely and they could care less about the political ideology behind it what they're doing is they're they're engineering this their their view of the future where mankind should go and they're the only ones that have that narrative and part of the proof in that is and i have i have to bring this up is of course everybody's oh they're they're always after conservatives. You know, they're, they're left-wing because they always censor conservatives. That is not true. They, they censor a lot of conservatives, but they also censor a lot of non-conservatives for the same reasons because it's issue-based. If you get after, if you start, I don't care who you are, what your political persuasion is, if you start writing against vaccines, for instance, or against uh, some type of public misconception or against um, things like um, glycosphate or whatever, you know, might be your thing, you'll find yourself just censored just right along with everybody else and your stories will disappear. They'll be shadow banned. They'll be pushed down the stack where they don't appear in the search engines anymore. And it, is, it doesn't really have to do with a class of people that they're censoring. It has to do with the topics that are being censored. That's the key thing here to understand. One of the key topics today that they are so 
in love with to get it done is this idea of global manipulation of the pool of the human pool to get the medical hooks into your body this is this is social engineering <clears throat> at its extreme where they're not only just engineering the society around you, the environment around you, but that's not enough. They also want to engineer you personally. And this is, this is their mind right now. We've seen evidence of this all over the place. I don't want to go into it and confuse this conversation, but uh, this is where it's going. This is the social engineering, the science of social engineering and you simply are part of your one little cog in that whole big picture that they look at. So it seems one of their goals too that you mentioned is sustainable development. Yes. That is uh, ostensibly a good thing and beneficial thing. But why don't you help us understand why ultimately it's not? Well, <clears throat> that's right. You know, the United Nations has declared that sustainable development is going to be the new economic system of the future. It's a resource-based economic system. It's based on energy. You see the talk about cap and trade and carbon and stuff all over the place. And a couple of years ago, the head of climate change uh, at the UN, Christiana Figueres, gave a press conference in Europe and she said, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we're setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. That's a direct quote from her lips. I dedicated a chapter in my book uh, to demonstrate that sustainable development is technocracy from the 1930s. It has all the same markers, it has all the same elements in it, uh, it was brought to the United Nations by members of the Trilateral Commission, by the way, in the first place. And the entire doctrine of sustainable development um, and the, the other terms around it, you see, if people don't understand that, maybe green economy would be one, maybe Green New Deal would be something people would kind of identify with. Um, sustainable development <clears throat> is the United Nations, and they, they were the contagion that took it to the world, uh, this is their vision for the future for, of society, is the sustainable future where they will control all the resources and all the consumption. In other words, they will tell businesses what they're allowed to build, and they will tell consumers what they're allowed to consume, period, in the subject. You don't need to be involved in this. They, they, they figure this all out for you in advance. This is the science of social engineering here. They have the science you just have to follow and do what they tell you to do. And it's very insidious. Of course, they have nice platitudes, like we're going to eliminate poverty, we're going to have education for all, we're going to have jobs with dignity, and that's all wonderful stuff. But when you get down to the, to the bottom of their so-called sustainable development goals, you see this whole thing of, well, all you have to do to get those things is just let us have all the control over the resources and the management of those resources on a global basis. Yes, indeed. So this, this is one of their goals. Now, I'm wondering if you could help me understand the 
creation of the Trilateral Commission, which seems to be behind the implementation of technocracy in the United States. What I don't completely appreciate is the connection to the history prior to, not necessarily the 1930 history, but even prior to that, because there's these forces that seem to want to control the world. And uh, I think many refer to them politely as the international bankers, and that might extend to the Rothschilds uh, being uh, a big part of this and collecting much of the world's wealth. And then beyond them, Rockefeller and JP Morgan and and many others. Um, So what, what I, because you don't mention it in your books other than Rockefeller in 1975, but clearly there's got to be some history connecting these because their, their vision and their goals are so aligned. It's difficult to imagine they're, they're not united in some way. Yes. I titled my latest book, Technocracy, the Hard Road to World Order. Mm-hmm. Um, the subtitle there, The Hard Road to World Order, was actually the title of an article written in 1974 that appeared in Foreign Affairs magazine. Uh, most people don't know this, but if you went back and looked at it, you'd find that article. It was written by Richard Gardner. He was an academic at the time. <clears throat> Gardner was also one of the original members of the Trilateral Commission. So he was one of their academic members, right, that wrote the papers, kind of like... <laughs> Kind of like the global warming and the big farm that people do. They get the, the studies paid for and they can make them say whatever. Well, Gardner was one of those academics back then that supported the Trilateral Commission. <clears throat> and here's what he wrote in that essay that appeared um, and that I uh, kind of modeled my book after. I figured he, he, was, he deserved a response. This is what he wrote. Uh, he said, in short, the House of World Order would have to be built from the bottom up rather than from the top down. It will look like a great booming, buzzing confusion, to use William James' famous description of reality, but an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, will accomplish much more than the old-fashioned frontal assault. That's a quote. This is packed with stuff. Number one, he talks about the old-fashioned frontal assault, which is kind of what you're uh, alluding to here. Well, in the past before that, there had been many so-called frontal assaults to change the system. They'd all failed. Mm-hmm. They didn't get anywhere. They just tried brute force to do it, and they didn't get anywhere. And national sovereignty was the big stumbling block, basically, because Americans held on to the Constitution. So they talk about an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece. Well, isn't that exactly what's happened over the last 45 years? Took them a long time, but they're just about complete with that. And most importantly, it says that building the world order from the top down, which didn't work, the frontal assault, it needed to be built from the bottom up. In other words, from the local grassroots level up. That's exactly what sustainable development has done now on a global basis. They have gone to every local community and seeded those sustainable development ideas into those communities so that they can build the system from the bottom up. That's part of their infrastructure also. But this article was just an amazing, amazing telltale article back then. Sutton recognized its importance back then, as did I. But now, coming, coming to 2020, I look at this quote, I look at what he said in 74, and I said, man, this guy was a visionary. 
not a prophet. He didn't have a crystal ball. But this was their strategy that they set in play back well, in the my, my guess is that he wasn't smart enough to figure that out, that, uh, but he was smart enough to learn from history. And there was a uh, Chinese general, Sun Tzu, wrote the book, The Art of War, 2,500 years ago. And it sounds like he adopted many of the principles that, that, that are uh, encouraged in that book. Yes. It's the same, same darn strategy. If it worked 2,500 years ago, why wouldn't it work now? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So along those lines, and this is, you know, one of the, as I've become, I've become hopefully wiser as I've grown older and, uh, and not taken the Lone Ranger approach, tried to collaborate with other people and to recognize that it is beyond foolish to not ignore and not adopt strategies that work. And they, they're classic, they're very clever, they're strategic, and, it, and they're, they're, they're winning. So the, the counter to this is that the same strategies can be employed by us to counter this. And we've actually used some of it, and I don't want to discuss it now because we'll, we'll, we'll give our hand of what we're doing at a broader base because you have to do it stealth. But we're doing things that have been very, very successful to, to infiltrate some of their behavior, at least in the, in the medical model. So I'm wondering if you can make recommendations of what the average viewer can do uh, through their own community to prevent the continued uh, and relentless uh, assault of technocracy into our culture. Right. It is, a, it is a tough one, and it's not always an easy answer, but I believe very strongly that local activism at this point is the only way to rebuild our country, if there is going to be any rebuilding at all. Local activism. This is how they got us, was building it from the bottom up. We cannot tear their house down from the top down. It simply is just not going to happen. They're too powerful. And let me, I'll let you go on, but let me just interject here that it gives an important point. That literally obliterates anyone's idea and concept that they think they're going to vote someone in office is going to make a difference. It ain't going to happen that way, folks. You can, you can vote in whoever you want. It's not going to work. Um, I, would you agree with that? I said the same thing <laughs> more than once. I'll tell you, we cannot expect the cavalry to come over the hill like in an old Western, you know, blowing the trumpet. Yay, we're saved. We're saved. There is no national government or any element of national government that's going to save us from these technocrats and technocracy. There's no state government either. In fact, there's even really no <clears throat> no local government the way it stands now unless that local government gets influenced and populated by people who know better and who are willing to tell these others, go away. You don't belong here. This is not the way we're going to run our community, our town or city, whatever it is. And we have access to those people. It's not yeah, like that's a, that's, that's a good point. Cause let me, ex, let me just expand my comment because it is not quite true. The, the most important elected official in your entire community is your sheriff. And we've seen that in these recent lockdowns and, and demonstrations is that, that the local sheriff is the one that's assigned the responsibility of enforcing the tyrannical edicts of the government. And yes. if they choose not to, government has no power. So your local sheriff is the, is the key. And I wouldn't 
be concerned yeah. about any other elected official. That's a good one. <clears throat> and, and I'll say again, of course, you need to elect the right constitutional sheriff and to, mm -hmm. do that, to do the job because a lot of sheriffs are simply not, they just don't care uh, about upholding the constitution that they swore to uphold when they took office. <clears throat> but the, the, the concept of, of, um, of who's going to flavor your local government, it's only up to people in, in the end of it. And people have gotten so conditioned to always look at somebody much higher than them to solve their problems. <clears throat> this might have been true for a time, I don't know really when, but um, this simply is not the way the world works. It's not the way our political system was ever designed to work. We're supposed to have local influence and, and you know, all the people above us that come into elected positions, they all come from the local level. Originally, somehow, they, they had to be born somewhere. Somebody had to know them. They probably started out with a uh, working, you know, maybe getting elected to some board or something, a water board or a school board or whatever. <clears throat> when you have access to those people, that's when you need to, to, to educate them, to get to know them, to find out their strengths and weaknesses, et cetera, and keep them going in the right direction. But anyway, local activism right now, I fully believe is the only salvation for our country. If there's going to be any rebuilding of the fabric of our country, that's where it has to take place. That means John Q. Citizen is going to have to get off his couch, turn off Fox News, turn off CNN and all that stuff, and actually go out and meet people. Can you imagine? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, there's a pandemic. Oh, we can't do that. Oh, yeah. Well, you could go meet people, but wear your mask. Well, I can't understand what you're saying, but, well, we'll work around those issues later, right? <laughs> those, those are just minor inconveniences to us right now. But local activism is the key to turning this back. And it has to happen with us. And city councils have incredible power like the county sheriff does. Uh, your, your city council has the ability to pass binding resolutions that can just put these people on their head if they knew what to do, if they would just you know start think through the issues and say, hey, we're not gonna do that here. There was a city in California, can't remember the name right now, somebody got to the city council, educated every one of them. The city council held a referendum and they passed a binding resolution that says there will be no agency, agency of the city or any other activity of the city that will support Agenda 21. And they, abandoned, they banned Agenda 21 from their city, lock, stock, and barrel. It's just a small city. But I thought, well, yeah. Well, so why don't you tell us what Agenda 21 is? Because some people may not know what that is. Well, that's true. I brought it up, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Agenda 21 is the keystone document for sustainable development. It was developed in 1992 at the Rio de Janeiro Conference um, of the United Nations, the so-called, the you know, it was the first Earth Summit, as well as, uh, I forget, they call it the IUCN or something, but it was a big United Nations meeting. <clears throat> and this became the agenda for the 21st century. And um, the doctrine that came, that came to be known as Agenda 21 came from a book that was written just a few years earlier by Gru Harlan Brundtland. Uh, she chaired the Brundtland Commission for the United Nations, and she produced a book called Our Common Future. <clears throat> and that book was singularly the book that fueled all the doctrines that went into Agenda 21. The United Nations considered her to be the mother of uh, Agenda 21. It just incidentally, Gru Harlan Brentland was a member. She chaired the committee and she wrote the book, edited and wrote most of it. 
She was a member of the Trilateral Commission. So we know where this doctrine came from. We know where it came from. It's unmistakable. And this was trilateral policy to feed this Agenda 21 and sustainable development into the United Nations so it would become contagion to take it to the whole planet. And they have done a very good job of that. By the yeah, way. It, it, we're, we're not disparaging the strategy. The strategy is very clever and it's effective. We're disparaging <laughs> what they're implementing. It's, it's like trying to, trying to uh, villainize or, or demonize a weapon like a gun. I mean, it could be used to save your... Yes. save your friends and family and or it can be used to kill people I mean, uh, in homicide so depends on the intent yes exactly so fast forward you know we're dealing with all this agenda 21 the 2030 agenda the sustainable development stuff on local bases all over the planet <clears throat> and we continue to deal with it and the only way we can get rid of it is to think local act local and, uh, and push it back up to them, send, send the signal up the chain that we're simply not going to put up with it, not going to do it. And if enough cities did this in America, it would turn these people on their head and they would all run away packing the bags at the same time. Well, that's a brilliant strategy. But the, in order to implement that, you need to educate the individuals seeking to, uh, to engage in this process. So how, what would you recommend to get them up to speed, to have the knowledge base so they can effectively educate those local uh, city council members? Well, you know, <clears throat> people have uh, a lot of uh, resources available to them, like programs like this, you know, that there's a lot of money, you know, you gotta be careful what you, what you watch and, you know, don't get off into the weeds with conspiracy theories, but <clears throat> there's a lot of information uh, on the internet and through really good books, you've mentioned a couple, and. Uh, that, that people can read to begin to understand the issues. But beyond that, when it comes to actually doing something, this is what led me uh, about th almost three years ago now uh, to found a nonprofit organization called Citizens for Free Speech. And I did that <clears throat> when I saw the collusion between the big tech social media companies to, to target certain people to take them out of existence. That really bothered me because it, it hinted at collusion. And I said, man, if these people are talking to each other now, we're really in trouble. If they're acting as a, as a wolf pack, if you will, to hunt us down. So I started Citizens for Free Speech with the idea <clears throat> that, that all of, these, uh, all of this, this technocrat meme is attacking the First Amendment first. It's, it's censoring our ability to communicate. It's keeping us from communicating with each other and with our government, and with our, <clears throat> you know, our, our adversaries, in a sense, those who may not agree with us fully. But our ability to communicate has been completely decimated in America. We're so dysfunctional. We're as, we're as dysfunctional as the worst dysfunctional family that you could imagine today. Everybody's at everybody else's throat all the time. There's no patience. There's no civil discourse anymore. <clears throat> and I believe that what people really have to learn, if they're gonna be local activists, they need to learn how to communicate their ideas. Once they got ideas, they need to learn how to communicate those ideas to other people. Maybe those people agree with them, maybe they don't, but nevertheless, they need to be able to express their ideas in a way that everybody in the room doesn't get triggered and start hammering on you. <clears throat> this concept of, uh, of appropriate communication is what restoring the First Amendment at this point is all about. 
And for those who, who kind of know what the First Amendment is all about, there's five things that are in it that are important to us. One is the, <clears throat> um, the free exercise of religion. The governor of California, uh, the health department over there in California, has just decided that people in churches, synagogues, and mosques can't sing because it would spread the virus. And so no singing in your church anymore. You can forget that. Well, you might be able to play an organ or something, but that's all. No, no singing. Um, freedom of speech is just shot right now. We, we've been talking about that. Freedom of the press. <clears throat> that's another thing. Articles get censored and spiked all the time. The right of people to peaceably assemble. You can't assemble when, when you know, governors have given you an edict saying no more than 10 people or 50 people can get together in, a, in, in any type of a thing. We can't petition the government for redress of grievances. The First Amendment is under an intense attack by these people. That's not by mistake. That's part of their strategy. Remember what, what Richard Gardner said, an end run around national sovereignty. That's part of it. Get rid of the First Amendment effectively. And what else do you have? Well, you have the Second Amendment. That's the first thing you see. I don't even want to talk about the Second Amendment. I, I support it totally, don't get me wrong. <clears throat> but if we lose the First Amendment, the Second Amendment was put there to take care of the loss of the first. <laughs> and that's the strategy at this point that the enemy had, that those, those against us have to break America down, get rid of the First Amendment. They figure the rest of America will fall into chaos, probably military conflict, armed conflict. <clears throat> and that will make it just right for them to sweep in and take over when people then beg for anybody to put government back together, or put the country back together, just make it work, folks. And you could just, personally, I'd look at it, I could just see this coming. But this, the idea of supporting and defending the First Amendment is so critical right now. People can get the issues, but if they cannot communicate those issues effectively, what's the point? Why just sit on your couch and know everything there is to know if you have no ability to communicate that to somebody else? I agree. So in your, in your books, you mentioned the, um, that many of these uh, local politicians may be absolutely unaware of the, uh, that they're following technocracy. They've sort of might have migrated it uh, through whatever means and that they are not necessarily rigid uh, uh, committed to those, those concepts, and they just need to be educated. So can you expand on that? Well, it's, it's you know, there's, there's a saying in politics, <clears throat> um, if you want to get along, you have to go along. There's a lot of peer pressure. Yeah. Um, peer pressure from your colleagues that might serve in the same body, peer pressure from your constituents, peer pressure from your opponent's constituents. <laughs> You got a lot of people pushing and pulling <clears throat> all the time. That's just the nature of politics. But um, a lot of people that just kind of went along to get along never really understood the issues that they were pursuing or the issues that they were sold. And they still have a moral compass. They still have an ethical compass in their mind that you can appeal to. And you can kind of peg somebody when you're talking to them to find out where they're coming from. You know, like, do they really understand anything? Are they, are they open to uh, constitutional ideas? Are they open to, uh, you know, really helping the public? Or are they just looking for a way to get rich? And that they're just using their office like that. 
<clears throat> you can peg people like this pretty easily. Um, and those that, um, that are open to be educated, man, you just need to zero in on them and just tell them, man, we, we, we love you and we want to support you. We'll do research for you. Uh, we want to help you do a better job for our community because, man, do we ever need it out here. And many people you'll find are very open to that political leaders, are very open to hearing from citizens. And it's unfortunate that, <clears throat> that um, you know, over the last uh, 20, 30 years, people have gotten into this mode, well, all of our elected people are too, uh, too unapproachable. I can't approach them. I can't go talk to them. I, 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 what would I say? I mean, I'm just a little guy out here. I'm nobody. Uh, and they bought that line that they have no right or no ability to go and address and communicate and engage whatever with their local leaders. That's really false. Um, <clears throat> but my, uh, my director of training, by the way, at the Citizens for Free Speech, she sums it up like this. She says, if you don't have a seat at the table, you are what's for dinner. <laughs> that is really good. And that's and, true. Uh, it's just absolutely true you, you know as you get a seat at the table just get out and mix it up you'll have fun along the way and you got good ideas in your head go out and share them with people maybe they won't yeah. buy it on day one but, but hey yeah. persistence and persistence yeah and, and it's very clear that if we're going to have any hope of recapturing our country and and there's no guarantee that we will i mean we, we may have lost the war at this point it might be too late i don't know but if we have any hope we have to create an army and this army is not one that is stocked with leads and bullets, with, with ammunition and bullets, but uh, but with relationship skills yeah. so we can go out and can do connections on a one-to-one -one basis. Yeah. There is a lot of talk today about us already losing the battle. And I, I hear this a lot. <clears throat> and here's how I respond. I, I, I want people to know this. We've had periods in our history where we had no idea that America was going to be able to survive the test that it was undergoing. We had the Civil War. We had World War I. We had World War II. And I'll tell you, at the beginning of those uh, uh, episodes, there was absolutely no guarantee that America would prevail as a country. And indeed, it looked awfully dim at some points in time where there was no hope and I'm not saying that's an excuse to think, well, somehow we're going to get through this. But here's, here's the attitude that America has had before, and it needs to have it today, I believe, as well. We do not do what we do because we're going to win. We do what we do because it's the right thing to do, mm -hmm. period. And you, let the, you just leave the results. It's out of your hands anyway, generally. Just, you know, but you do what's right because it's the right thing to do. And if enough Americans figure out, you know what, let's, let's, let's reinstall our moral compass to this country. Let's, let's put our ethical needle back in place where it belongs. And let's start doing the right things in our country because they're the right thing to do, not because it's expedient, convenient, or it's going to get us rich or get us benefits from the government or whatever. Let's do it what's right because it simply is the right thing to do. And right now, the right thing to do is to engage and push back against this nonsense that we're being inundated with. Yeah, do you think that the uh, technocrats have anticipated this counter and actually have moves to, to uh, block that? Or do you just think that they're, they're concluding that 
that America is just asleep at the wheel and there's no way there's going to be this type of reaction or response. Well, there's, there's growing uh, awareness now, I believe, in America that something is drastically wrong. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I, I'll, I, I sense this awareness from a number of different angles, not just what people say to me, but the people, for instance, the, the quantity, the number of people that are coming to technocracy.news to read about technocracy and stuff, the traffic has just increased incredibly. I'm getting more emails and more communication from readers and stuff that, wow, I just, you know, I just saw this for the first time. I see what's going on. And <clears throat> I think there's a growing awareness that I have not seen in the last, say, 20 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. This is very encouraging. But the other thing that I see is that people are willing now <clears throat> uh, that appreciate at least maybe what we're talking about here today, they understand the value now or maybe the necessity of civil disobedience. And this is a very mm. touchy subject. I, I don't want to go down the road too much, but we have reached the point where, where technocracy has pushed us into a corner to where if we are not civilly disobedient, if you will, to their civil orders, not mm. to what we should have, but if we do not resist this and say, we're not going along with your program, then they will continue to push us into the corner until we simply cannot get out of that corner. The yeah. time has come for people <clears throat> to do what they know is right and to protect themselves first, not to think about the greater good all the time. But, <clears throat> you know, I, I liken this to an airplane when they give you the instructions before the flight. They say, if the oxygen mask come down, put it on your face first and then help the person next to you. Right. Well, that whole thing's been flip-flop now. Now it's we have to put the mask on to, to protect everybody else um, against us, even if it's detrimental to our own health. Once people see through the pseudoscience of face mask and social distancing <clears throat> and contact tracing and all these mechanisms that are being thrown down at us, once they start to see through the <clears throat> the statistical models being totally erroneous, they, they're beginning to understand we just need to stop this behavior and not obey them. And um, <clears throat> my friend Mary Baker, I referenced a minute ago, she, she says that, that we simply must not play the role that they have assigned us to play. Whatever that role is, I, it may be different for different people. Sure. But whatever role they assign to you, you simply must not play it. And so if that means just saying, look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deal with this face mask thing anymore, <clears throat> or I'm I'm gonna sing in church. <laughs> Thank you, it's my church. I'll worship the way I want, and we're gonna sing. Um, this civil disobedience, I think, is ready to sweep the country. And that's gonna throw a lot of flack back in the face of these technocrats who thought they could get away with it. Yeah, uh, California is a good case in point, by the way. I know there's churches over there now that are banding together as a group to defy the governor on controlling the church's behavior and the people's behavior in the pews. <clears throat> they're going to take it. That first, they're just going to sing. And secondly, they're going to take it to court and they're going to get discovery to, to bear on this whole thing and bring the hammer down on them. That, you know, that's an appropriate thing. It's civil disobedience initially. People are just going to have to figure out in the end how much are you willing to sacrifice 
Yes, there, the there, there is going to be a sacrifice there. And, it, and, I, and I want to emphasize, it needs to be peaceful and respectful. Yes. This is not violent civil disobedience. <clears throat> That's this right. Is peace, this is peaceful civil disobedience. And I, and I think it is really an essential integral strategy to be effective at resisting this tyrannical assertion of technocracy yes. and control of our society. <clears throat> We must, I, and I, I just hasten to add to, we must restore our constitution, which is the framework for everything else in our nation. We must restore the effective application of the constitution to our society. And of course, everybody that's against the constitution is telling us it doesn't matter anymore. It's just doesn't, you know, it's, it's out to lunch. It's an old document. It's, it's just uh, baloney. <laughs> but... <clears throat> the Department of Justice uh, just recently wrote a statement of interest to support a lawsuit that was lodged by a church in Greenville, South Carolina, against the city of Greenville for discriminating against their church. A uh, great lawsuit. I'm, I, I won't even talk about it, but they had reason to file a lawsuit, believe me. Um, <clears throat> and the Department of Justice came out with this statement and they filed it with a court. I got a copy of it. I said, believe me, this will never hit the media. But here's what it says. There is no pandemic exception, however, to the fundamental liberties the Constitution mm -hmm. safeguards. Indeed, quote, individual rights secured by the Constitution do not disappear during a public health crisis. These individual rights, including the protections in the Bill of Rights, made applicable to the states, to the 14th Amendment, are always in force and restrain government action. That's a direct quote from this brief just issued by the Department of Justice. And it's like, guys, holy mackerel. The, the Department of Justice is laying this out. These people have no right to trample on the Constitution, much less the Bill of Rights, much less the First Amendment. They have absolutely no right to do that. And only we, the people, can turn around and say, you know what, you can't do that because it's supposed to restrain government action. That's what we need, that's what we need to do here, is restrain these knuckleheads from doing what they're doing to tear the fabric of our country apart. Yeah, and I, and I want, just want to repeat, because I think it's such an important component, is that ideally it's done in conjunction with the cooperation of your local sheriff who you've helped yes, elect. Absolutely. Because ultimately that sheriff is gonna be there to enforce these radically irrational uh, interventions that the government is, is recommending. So many governments are not recommending, mostly democratic states, of course, but uh, nevertheless, there are, it, it's many Republican states are doing too. It's just, it's, it's nonsensical from the perspective of a scientific justification for that, for the, for the greater good, which it isn't. But but it's uh, it's done in cooperation with the sheriff. I mean that there, because there's many communities who had who had a cooperating sheriff who refused to enforce those government orders. Yes, yes, and it's a wonderful thing. We we happen to be graced out in Arizona here with the presence of uh, of Sheriff Richard Mack, who is the oh he's he's the ultimate sheriff. He's the he's the leader. I he's want to interview good. him. He's good. Maybe you can give me his contact information because he's I I have enormous respect for him. Yes. And the reason, the reason that there are constitutional sheriffs out there, like the ones you referenced, are largely there because of his efforts to go out and instruct them on what their rights are as sheriffs to do. Yeah. And those that accepted the challenge, <laughs> when they had a threat appear, 
they said, wait a minute, we're not going to do that. Yeah, no, yeah. We're not the, the Gestapo out here. We're not going to enforce your, your, your phony baloney orders from state level or whatever. <clears throat> we're going to support the Constitution in our county. It's a wonder, and I'll tell you, it's just a wonderful breath of fresh air to see sheriff like, a sheriff like that stand up for the people. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think Richard is retired now, but he's instrumental in training other active sheriffs. Yes. And what a magnificently leveraged uh, investment of time, effort, and energy because they affect, I mean, it's just you're not affecting the sheriff, you're affecting all their local communities. So, I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm going to have him on and just get his recommendations. I'd like to support him in any way because he's doing such a magnificent job at, at yes, yes. helping the country. Yes, this is a very important work. And he doesn't just speak to sheriffs, by the way. He speaks to other leaders of communities and stuff. He speaks to mayors. He speaks to anybody who's taken an oath of office, especially to uphold, defend, and support the Constitution. <clears throat> if you took an oath to do that, you either need to rescind your oath or you need to follow it. And if you want to follow it, you're not willing to rescind it, here's how you do that. And he just lays it out for him. It's so clear. It's so easy to understand. He's a great communicator. He's a great motivator. And he just, he captures people. He captivates people when he speaks to them, one, especially one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, well, great. Well, that's, thank you for that recommendation. And uh, uh, I look forward to connecting with him personally. So any other uh, recommendations you have? Like, why don't you give us the details of your organization you've constructed for the free speech and your website again, mm -hmm. and, and how people can find out more information about what you're doing? Absolutely. Citizensforfreespeech.org. That's it. That's the website address. Uh, you can just go there and check it out. And get. I just encourage you to get on board. There's no charge to join. Um, <clears throat> but we need people to stand together with us that realize that, hey, the First Amendment has just got to be restored or everything else is lost. Um, secondly, too, I'll just mention that we've been distributing uh, a no mask face, uh, excuse me, a no face mask card, plastic card with a lanyard that people can wear around their neck. And I believe me, it works out here in Arizona. I've been, I wear it everywhere. <clears throat> and I just explain to people in stores and whatever, if they don't like, I'm not wearing a mask. I say that, you know, I believe this is harmful to my health. And, and uh, you know, I, I simply cannot wear a mask. And um, by and large, nobody's really yelled at me yet. I know some people get yelled at, but I haven't been yelled at yet. And I can walk into stores like Costco and Walmart or wherever, and nobody even pays attention to me anymore. Um, we encourage people to to get a hold of one of these cards and just, you know, if, they, if they're concerned about this, wear this card and explain to people what it's all about, that you have the right to choose whether or not you're going to participate in this or not. And if you don't want to choose, uh, this this is the terms of your not participating. You know, in, in, just, a, just I just read this morning an article where the narrative in the mainstream media is they're seeking to push, is they're seeking to... Uh, identify people who refuse to wear masks with those who are drunk driving or texting while driving. It's an irresponsible social behavior. That, that's, what they're, that's what they're seeking to ingrain in the minds of the public. Absolutely. To vilify people. There, there's uh, there's pu public shaming, um, the, the cancel culture. You know, I mean, it, it all comes to bear on this right now. This is part of the communication process that we need to overcome. We need to, you know, push this this line of thinking back and restore personal individual liberty to, to America. And I, I just still haven't met anybody that is kind of on that side, you know, well, you're going to selfish, whatever. When you talk to them and get right down to them, most of these people have the same values that we have. They just don't understand what their own values are. 
But when you kind of get them to drill down into it and you ask them a few questions and you get to know them a little bit, you know what? Most of them have the same concerns that we have. They just don't know how to express themselves. Yeah, they're operating out of fear, a fear engineered by the, the mainstream media and the propaganda that's that right. are, are driving fear into is. people's minds because they're failing to follow Anthony Sutton's behavior from 50 years ago, which was turn off the, the television sets. <laughs> I know. You know, people have asked me, what would Sutton say if he were alive today? He passed in 2002, by the way. <clears throat> and, and I can... What I remember of him, if he were alive today, he would have the shortest speech you ever heard. I think he would get up on stage and he would simply say, I told you so. <laughs> and he would walk away. <laughs> yeah, British, this, that's British humor for you. <laughs> it is. I know. It's like, it's, I'm not going to tell you anymore. I told you everything you need to know way back then, and you didn't get it. And uh, well, I, I'm so glad you were a student of his and have really embraced the the model of helping educate people and help us understand these simple rational truths. You give us so many pearls today. I mean, is it that are really practical can make a phenomenal difference if you just listen to and apply and to understand that you can make a difference. It's you individually. It's not this somehow generic you. It's you taking the steps and positive actions if we have any hope of recovering our country and preserving the, our constitutional rights and freedoms. That's exactly right. It's up to us. We people. It's up to us in the end if our country is going to be yeah. restored at all. And isn't this been the case all throughout his, our history? It was we people who uh, broke free from England in the first place. A lot of people didn't want to do that back then, but, but there were enough that did that said, we'll stand up and do it. It was we the people who have fought every war ever since and defended our country and many gave everything they had, including their life, to defend what we have today as freedom and liberty. <clears throat> we can't do any less today. And uh, yes, we do need an army of people, not, not an army to carry weapons, but an army to carry the message every corner of our country that what, what, that what we know to be true really is true. And that really is, it really does work. And it really is fair. And it really is just. And the rule of law really does mean that we're supposed to apply the law equally to all people in America, regardless of race, color, creed, et cetera, <clears throat> and religion. And uh, we need to put the system back in place effectively and get people away from the, the radical fringe and say, guys, you just need to come in from the cold. This is not acceptable. Well, it's been such a great privilege and honor connecting with you. And for all, and I want to thank you for your nearly five decades of work in this area. And uh, it's just a delight. I, I regularly, I don't subscribe to any channels, but I view your videos all the time. And I look oh, forward to each one that comes out. And, you know, it's just a really common sense, level-headed, communi direct communication. You, you know, I really admire what you're doing. And what's the name of your YouTube channel? So people want to get regular doses of you, how would they would do that? It's just technocracy news and trends. Okay, uh, technocracy news yeah, and trends. Search for the word technocracy, it'll come yeah, up. Yeah, it'll come up. So it's, uh, it's definitely one I, that I, I, I look at all your videos since I found out about you a few weeks ago. So yeah, it's great. Love it. All right. Well, thank, thanks again. You're just doing a great service out there and a, a really true patriot. So thanks for everything. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I want to say, too, I appreciate your, uh, your influence and your, <clears throat> your drive to do what you do. I, I run into people all the time, literally, and we, we're, we study 
uh, health issues quite a bit in our household. And uh, everybody we talk to um, is, knows about Dr. Mercola and they, you know, you are alive and well in the hearts of America, whether or not Google wants you to be alive and well in their heart or not, you know, isn't that great? Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, thankfully, and I, I'm uh, actually really quite surprised it's come until 2019 to essentially remove me from the search engines and that we had literally over 20 years to make a dent because our, my, I started my website before Google existed. And uh, so we had a chance to penetrate. So we're in the minds of and consciousness of a lot of people and we don't need the search engine. The, the thing that saddens me the most is that, uh, you know, we, it's difficult to reach the new people who are just engaged, not engaged, but exposed to all this propaganda and needless and unnecessary. But, but it is what it is. And we've got an army of people and it's just, you That's know, it. communications like this that will help people to spread the word and... Uh, and, 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 and engage in the behaviors we need to, to radically change our cultures. An army of people who are telling other people one at a time. Right. Your website. That's it. Now, see, that's exactly. Well, not my website. It's just the truth. The truth. <laughs> oh, you, know, what, you know, it's out there because there's so many things. I mean, the, I, I am, I, I'm such an ardent fan of technology. Not technocracy, but technology, because it, it's it's like it's a weapon. It can be used for good or bad, and it's so the, the, it's it's the greatest. I mean, the internet is the greatest invention in the history of mankind, in my view. And it, I mean, Sutton would have loved it. I mean, he did. He would he passed in two thousand two, but I mean, he really didn't fully experience all the benefits of the newer, even newer technologies that that the internet offers. So it's just magnificent if you know where to plug into. And I and that, you know since. I've actually, just even the last few months, because you know my feeds have all changed, and I'm just engaging and consuming the information that I never even knew existed before, like your channel. So it's just magnificent. So anyway, it's it's good. I'm glad that your community knows the work I've been doing. So that's good. Well, I appreciate it, and I really appreciate you having me on today. Uh, it's been great. Um, I've followed you for some time as well, and <clears throat> and uh, we're we're birds of a feather, obviously. Uh, all right. Well, you yes. keep up the good work. Yeah. Thank you. I will. You too.